Today's episode is brought to you by the Consultancy Growth Network. As you'll know, I'm a big believer in learning from people who've achieved the things that you want to. It's why I run this podcast, to share the stories of consulting leaders and how they've got to where they are today. So when I started talking to Mark Janssen and the team at Consultancy Growth Network, it was clear there was an obvious fit between Climate Consulting and their mission and what they are building with their network. But you're probably asking, what is the Consultancy Growth Network? The Consultancy Growth Network is the leading community of boutique consulting leaders. It brings together seasoned consulting growth experts who successfully scaled their own boutiques, with rapidly growing consulting founders looking to emulate their success. Now, you might be thinking, who are these growth experts? What do they actually know about consulting? And this is one of the most exciting things that personally I find about the network. The team at the Consultancy Growth Network have searched far and wide for some of the best boutique consulting leaders to help their members on their journeys, some of which I have previously interviewed for this podcast, such as Don Morehouse and Augusto Negrillo. But it's not just the insights from these people that you will benefit from. By joining, you get access to their jam-packed calendar of regular in-person and online events, their comprehensive growth hub of resources, and their active Slack community. Through all of these channels, you can learn, solve challenges, and achieve the goals you want for your firm. And now, if that wasn't enough reason to sign up, the Consultancy Growth Network is giving all listeners to this podcast a special sign-up offer. If you join for 12 months, you join for that next year, you will get your 13th month for free, giving you that extra month to continue to build on everything you're learning and continue to benefit from the network. To sign up, just visit consultancygrowthnetwork.com or contact their partnerships director, Luke, at luke at consultancygrowthnetwork.com. And when you're talking about joining, mention Create Engage or Climbing Consulting, and you will get that special sign-up offer. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Now, as we all know, in the crowded consulting market, most firms stick to the established business models to help them grow and scale. And why wouldn't you? We know they work, we've seen them work, and there's plenty of examples of that. So when I got the opportunity to sit down with someone who has chosen to build their business a little differently and has achieved huge success at the same time, I jumped at the chance. And that was today's conversation. Today, I speak to Graham Freeman, co-founder of Freeman Clark, the largest and most experienced team of fractional IT leaders for the mid-market. Having run IT services businesses, built commercial software products, and been a corporate CIO and non-executive director, Graham had deep experience in IT, but stepping out into his own portfolio career, he saw the opportunity for something more. After considering various options and ideas, it was a chance meeting with Steve Clark that led to launching Freeman Clark, and the rest, as they say, is history. As you will hear in this conversation, by focusing on a niche market, in this case, the mid-market, and by fostering genuine client relationships and taking that hands-on approach to delivering results for their clients, Freeman Clark has carved their own path to success and done so on both sides of the pond. In this episode, Graham and I dive into all of these elements and the unorthodox path that Freeman Clark has taken and share many foundations that have led to their success. We touch on why Freeman Clark focus on the mid-market and the benefits that they see as a result. We talk about how Freeman Clark have built their marketing machine and the long-term view they take that helps them to turn that trickle of leads into a volcano of new business. And we talk about how Freeman Clark 
have been able to grow so successfully by being laser focused on client satisfaction and staying true to their core service proposition. This conversation is a fantastic reminder that there's always ways to do things differently in consulting and that it's often the hidden benefits that come from taking that path less traveled. So with the intro over, please sit down. You'll probably want a notebook for this. There were tons of things to take away. I did when we spoke and I'm sure you will too. So with that little advice given with the intro done, please enjoy today's interview with Graham Freeman. Graham, welcome to the show. Hi. Well, you were, came highly recommended by Simon Clark, who is a former guest, and I know you two have a long-standing relationship, which we'll dive into shortly, but I always listen to people's recommendations, and so I'm very excited to have you on the show. Thank you for making the time. To kick us off, for those who maybe don't know you so well, it'd be great if you could give your background and a little bit on how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. So I started at Logica, for those who can remember it, in fairly heavy-duty maths and science, then moved across to software, into management and sales, uh, leading bids and and so on. Then I moved on from there to uh, another software company where I ended up as a a director and shareholder through the dot-com boom, the dot-com bust. And then as a kind of burnt-out exec, when I got myself a, a corporate role, which I took for seven, eight years and ended up as CIO and then wanted to get back into consulting and so ended up founding Freeman Clark, uh, which is where I've been for the last 12 years, believe it or not. Fantastic. Well, a great intro. It leads us nicely to the start of Freeman Clark. And to your point there, I'd, I'd love to dig into the origin story a little bit. I've, I've seen the video on your website, and thank you, because it's, it's always very helpful to have things like that. And, and I understand at the time, it was you and Steve were the only people that you could find who sort of had those portfolio careers. But what was it about that that led you to launch you know, your own firm? Can you share a bit more about the, that kind of early story and how you two decided to, yeah, to launch Freeman Clark? I think, you know, there's the story you can tell with hindsight, and then maybe there's the story as it actually was. I was pursuing a number of ideas and I had a kind of a piece of paper with a few things written down on it. I don't know, probably could still dig up that piece of paper if I needed to. But while I was pursuing those things, I completely accidentally was asked to become part-time CTO of one business and then really another one. And I think by the time the third one came along, I shaped it into that. And this was just for some cash while I was doing what I really wanted to do. But actually, when the dust settled, I realized that, the, that what I was really enjoying was these part-time, I mean, we kind of invented the word fractional or settled on it, were these part-time CTO roles. They were just much more fun, much more stimulating, much more interesting than a lot of the fantastic ideas I had. And I was also just intrigued that of all the people I was meeting, no one else was doing this. And I sort of thought that is unusual, isn't it? That is strange. And then literally, so I was talking to a guy I knew in private equity, and he said to me, well, you should meet Steve Clark. 
And I really had no idea who Steve Clark was and why I should meet him. But when we sat down and I said, what are you up to? It just became apparent to us, became apparent to both of us that we were doing the same thing. And we were the only people doing that. And we were the only people who had made a go of it and at some level had got it working. And I remember our conversation was that if both of us had accidentally managed to build up a portfolio, surely if we set our minds to it, we could create a business. The need in the mid-market is very obvious, really, but that's not to say it's an easy business to start. And frankly, it's not to say it's the great business to start. It's not the obvious thing to do. Most people, when they're, when they're trying to sell some form of uh, IT service, management consulting, those kinds of things, would aim at enterprises, corporations, you know, the top tier or the second tier. That would be the obvious place to go. But we deliberately decided not to go there. So that's the story. That's, that's quite a story, Graham. And I've got a few questions that, that that sprung to mind. I think the first one, just so our listeners are on the same page as us, could you just give a broad definition of mid-market? To your point there, it's, it's not where many people go, so many might not know it. It's probably many a definition, but what, what's yours? I wouldn't get too hung up on it. I think we often talk about businesses between 10 and 100 million um, revenue. In the UK, I'm talking now, though we do have some clients that are larger and we do have some clients that are smaller. I mean, so we've got some free revenue clients. So maybe a, a revenue definition is, is irrelevant. Maybe the best way to understand it is those companies who have got a big enough need and can afford our services, but who, who aren't obvious targets for and aren't really appropriate companies to be working with big ticket consultancies. So you end up with a market whose need is very strong. You know, these days, any mid-market business is going to have to put IT systems, digital, AI at the heart of its strategy. And yet, where do they start? Because they lack a leader around the board table who can actually make that happen. So that's the gap that we try to fill. That makes perfect sense, Graham, and gives us or gives our audience a useful I guess, box to, to place. And I mean, you, you teed me up for one of my next questions. You know, to your point, today, with all of the things going on in IT, it, it may seem obvious, and you might say it was the same 12 years ago, but when you and Steve met each other as the only two people doing this, you can draw two conclusions. One is you're geniuses and there's an untapped market. The other is there might be a good reason no one else is doing this. To your point of it not being an easy business, how did you two decide that this is the business you want to create, not, you know, Little Accenture or Little PwC? I mean, we both had consultancy experiences and I had been a consultant for years and some of the other ideas I had were in that vein. So it could have been, but I think our hunch was that there was a volume business opportunity here and that's proved to be the case. And there is something about working with mid-market businesses which is exciting in a way that I think had surprised us both. I mean, I remember the first part-time CTO role that I took, and it was an introduction that someone I knew made to me. And I remember thinking, well, why on earth would I want to do that? It's not an obvious that why would I want to work for a company that's that small? Because it must be quite, you know, it must not be the challenge that of the, an enterprise corporations. But that's not true, actually. Um, many of these businesses have all of the same issues, uh, have all of the same complexity. They just don't have the scale. They just don't have the budget. 
Um, but you're often much closer to the group of people who are trying to make it work as a business. And you ha- you avoid many of the kind of political and organisational sort of um, complexities and chicanery that you get in corporations. So you spend much less time having to deal with that and you spend much more time actually trying to make a difference to help them create value and serve their customers, frankly. It makes a lot of sense, Graham, and I can see you know the passion's clear in your voice and we'll, we'll talk more about actually how you scale that to your point of it being a volume play. I, I guess the, the other obvious question off the back of this is, to your point, Steve, and, and correct me if, if I, I've misunderstood, but Steve was just someone who you'd been introduced to who you'd met for a coffee, which is a bit like a first date. How and when did you decide to, you know, in this context, get married? Because picking a business partner is a bit like picking a life partner. How did you two get comfortable with each other? And, and yeah, how did you make that decision? Yeah, that is a question. And I think the answer, again, with the benefit of hindsight, is that we didn't just launch the business, actually. I think that what happened was we were both doing other things and we spent a considerable time investigating this and seeing how we might make it work. It wasn't obvious how to do it. I mean, no one else was doing it. We spent a lot of time chewing over how the whole thing could work. And so during that time, we became increasingly comfortable with each other. I remember documents that we wrote together. I remember we went to we went on some sort of joint experimental sales meetings. We just asked people we knew if they knew anyone who might need our help. And I mean, we went on some sales meetings that were frankly laughable, I think we'd say now. The kind of people we were seeing and, and how we pitched the idea to them was absurd, we would say now. But through that process, we became more comfortable with each other and more confident that we could work together. So we have plenty of time to get to know each other. I like what you say there, uh, I infer around that, almost that market testing and scoping going, because it, it sounds like, you know, to use well, the best I can of tech parlance, it sounds like part of this was creating a business model that could scale and part of it was creating product market fit. And actually, it sounds like early on, those were the two things you tested before you even took a step out to become Freeman Clark. It was, let's test these. 100%. Yeah, 100%. And there's something beyond that, which is even if you've got a product that fits, even if you've got a model that works, in the mid-market where you're dealing with entrepreneurs, there's a big difference between what they might buy, what they should buy, and what they will buy. Yeah. So these are not people who are accustomed to buying this. And these are not typically, we're not dealing with customers who have it on their, uh, who have set an objective. We're not dealing with someone whose objective is to buy what we sell. We're dealing with someone who's probably largely unaware of this and who may have heard of us, or more often than not now, people have heard of us, but they don't entirely understand this, and they probably never really met anyone like the kinds of people that we have on our team. To your point, how have you honed that proposition? I was really keen to explore the scaling and how you've gone from two of you to 100 plus. And maybe that's a good place to start is, to your point, I guess the the benefit of the mid-market is you're dealing directly with the entrepreneur or the management team. I guess to some extent, the curse is 
there are lots of them, but they're not easy to find. You know, if you work in, I don't know, big farmer, you can corral the big farmers and go digging within, you know, the, the big names. If you're dealing with the mid-market, there is an abundance of potential target clients, but there is also, there is, it's very difficult to find, you know, they don't all hang out at the same conference, I don't imagine. Maybe you'll tell me that's wrong. How did you hone that proposition? Because the other side of that, Graham, is you will be getting, I suspect in those early days, one meeting, someone said, IT is a waste of time, we don't need it. Someone else probably really connected with what you're offering. How did you begin to sort of take those two ends of the spectrum to coalesce around an offering that actually hit the target clients you wanted to work with? The broad answer, I think, is that we have honed the way we do business through trying every single wrong way <laughs> over the years. And that's, and in my experience, that is how you grow a business, is by doing everything wrong in every conceivable way until you're only left with the right possible ways of doing it. But I think the more sensible answer actually is that our business is primarily based on networks of partners and alliances. So we work very closely with a number of other providers of other part-time executives. We work very closely with all of the kinds of advisors, providers of business services who will know the boards and the senior leaders of mid-market businesses around the whole of the UK and increasingly in the US tri-state. So that is what we really are, is the sum of the you know, internal and external relationships and the relationships that we built up in the UK mid-market particularly are incredibly strong. So that's where most of our business comes from. That makes sense, particularly to your point with the, the partner's route. And I am going to, I won't do it right now, Graham, but I want to come back to all of those mistakes you've made because I find those, those learnings are the things that help people most and you know, help, help them hopefully avoid, and excel, avoid some of the pitfalls and accelerate their own business. But I, I think just because it, it does set the scene for the, the journey and all that followed, you know, we, we got to the point where the two of you, had, you've road tested this, but there's, was the vision always to create the scale of firm you have? And if it wasn't immediately, how has that vision evolved? You know, was it to start the two of you? Was it to get to 10 of you? Like, yeah, how did the two of you decide this is what we want to create? Or did you? So we took a very deliberate decision when we started the business. And again, I remember very clearly a meeting we had with three PowerPoint slides where we kind of defined three possible visions for the future. One of them was about the business really being Steve and I and a fairly small group of consultants who would work with us. And frankly, we probably could have made more money doing that. The second one was to have a handful of other business development people and a larger group of consultants. But again, that was the kind of vision for it. The third one was just to grow the business as big as we could, because that might be the most fun. And we both of us immediately said, well, let's do the third one, because that's the obvious thing to do. So that was extremely helpful, because from the very beginning, it meant that our roles in the business were to scale it and our objectives were to scale it all the time so you you kind of hinted before questions you were going to ask about how we managed to scale the business 
in the way that we have done. And I think that's because from the very beginning, that was our mission. You meet a lot of businesses. I mean, obviously, we work with 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 so many mid market businesses, and for the most part, the way the story looks is that you have one or two functional experts, one or two practitioners, effectively, who then surround themselves with other people who can help them accomplish the work, who can help them deliver to the clients. But we knew that that wasn't going to be how we'd make this work. That what we needed to do was create a team, a community of people who could deliver the services to the clients. And we needed to create the IP and the foundations for the business in order to generate the business opportunities and to create the team of people who could deliver to those business opportunities. So it was a it was a very, very different attitude that we had from the beginning. I love that, Graham, and I love the, the three slider. I think, like you said, with that bit of paper, I'm sure you can find. I, I hope somewhere you've still got that slide deck. I don't know if you've printed it out and put it on a wall somewhere. Um, As you know, I should do that, actually, yeah. It does feel like, you know, you see those early uh, like business plans or early pitch decks from tech firms. It feels like that's, that, that's your equivalent. And it's a fascinating question around mindset because the two of you clearly had structure in your thinking going in. How did that then change your approach to the business once you'd made that decision? And I know this, I appreciate this was early on, Graham, but with hindsight, how did that change how you and Steve approached your roles? Because I think that is a fascinating topic for if you know you're going for as big as you can go from, the, from day one, what does that change in your decision making about how you grow the business? I think maybe the first thing to appreciate is that although it's our names over the door, although it's Freeman Clark over the door, we're not the ones who, who are doing the work, obviously. I mean, I suppose that goes without saying, but many consultancies, the real expertise is with the founder. That's certainly not the case for us um, <laughs> in the nicest possible way. That's certainly not the case. And we've seen, I've seen many times, Steve has seen the same, how many businesses in a way grind to a halt in their journey of scaling because it is fundamentally about the founders and then they're surrounded by a group of other people you know the founders are the surgeons and then there are other people who who kind of you know prepare the patient and all the rest of it the founders come in to do the clever bit that's not us that's not the kind of business we were ever trying to create we knew that we were trying to create far 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 more opportunities than Steve and I could possibly fulfill. And we were trying to create a team that was so big that we would have to work at enormous speed to get them opportunities. So the idea was to kind of create a volcano of work and a volcano of great people. And those two things would be the perfect combination. Um, That's a very, very different attitude. You know, fundamentally, as a business, our intellectual property is about how we create leads, how we close them, how we build networks, how we retain clients. Yeah. And I suppose the other thing, which we've said many times, is whatever we're doing now won't be sufficient in six or 12 months' time. And we have to always be looking at it in those terms. Whatever we're doing now, we're going to have to be doing differently in six or 12 months. And whatever we're doing then, we're going to have to be doing differently again six or 12 months later. So there's just been an attitude from the outset 
which is that we are simply trying to make the boat go faster all the time. I think there's some really interesting areas for us to dive in on those, Graham. And, and maybe working backwards, I, I will come back to the volcanoes, but to your point there around what we kind of do now won't be sufficient in six to 12 months. Yeah, how do we make that boat go faster? Have there been, along the 12 years, any major inflection points, you know, real revolutions rather than evolutions? And, and if so, what? Because I think, again, for anyone listening who maybe in a similar position, scaling a consultancy or a practice area or thinking about it. Those are always fascinating. What were those big inflection points where you really had to make changes in the business? Yeah, not really. I'd say not really. The business has evolved all the time, obviously, at great pace. Um, I do remember, I mean, obviously, at the beginning, Steve and I knew every lead. We knew everyone. We knew Exactly. We knew everything. And I do remember the first time that I was told we won a client and I had no idea that they were even a prospect. I had no idea where they'd come from. I had no idea who was doing the work and so on and so on. And so you've kind of crossed a point of scale there. But it's really just an evolution. And I think that it's pretty much been on on the same path since we're a few weeks in. Maybe the only proper inflection came during the pandemic when there when particularly at the beginning of the pandemic there was a point when i did begin to wonder whether we were going to be in in deep trouble but then within about four or five months we were winning clients again better quality clients i think actually clients that have had more staying power and i think actually it's probably been been good for us on, on balance but it did mean that we had to reconstruct quite a lot of our kind of networking uh, and client acquisition around uh, remote working. And quite a lot of our delivery became more remote. But culturally, we still want to be a face-to-face business. We still see our primary networking model as being face-to-face. We still see our primary um, client acquisition model face-to-face we still do most of our interviewing and uh, and we still want to do most of our work face-to-face because we're a relationship business so at the time that may have felt more more like an inflection point than it actually uh, turned out to be so i think the answer is no not really the business has simply evolved one client at a time and one new member of the team what we call principals at a time so that evolution then, maybe the, the better question is, what was it either that you and Steve put in place and continue to hold, or maybe just you know, it was a, an approach you both had to continue that evolution? Because I, I think it's easy to talk about, well, we always want to improve, we always want to continually evolve. But often when business grows and gets busy, it's the first thing to go out the window because there's a client to service or there's a, a fire to put out. How have you maintained that to your point? So you've never had to take that revolutionary step change it's always been a kind of evolutionary approach what what are the things that have enabled you to to do that i don't know processes meeting structures I'm fascinated the kind of the nuts and bolts underneath that yeah i mean steve and i obviously have many many weaknesses but i think that one of the strengths that has taken us through this is that we have remained completely focused and we're we're opening a number of new doors now, but we've done, I think, a very good job 
of saying, no, this is what we're going to do and remaining completely focused on Freeman Clark's core business, which is the provision of fractional IT leaders to mid-market businesses. And, you know, when you're running a business, as you will know, every day you can dream up something new. And every day someone would say to you, well, you should do this, you should do that. I've got a really great idea for you. And they are often really great ideas. But we've been very good at saying, we're just going to do what we do really, really well. And no one else is doing it because it's hard. And so we're going to dig in and dig in and dig in. And so we have created the business that we created, which is head and shoulders above any other company operating in this space. So I think a lot of that has been about the fact that we've chosen not to pursue other opportunities, which might have looked quite attractive. Now, I think we've got to a scale now where there are other opportunities we want to pursue to augment the business, to de-risk it, to pursue other opportunities which are linked with it. But for 12 years or whatever it is, we have been very, very singular about saying, no, this is what we do. I think we'll come back to that piece, Grant, because it's fascinating. And, and there is a whole conversation around industry orthodoxy and where you have not followed that and how you've been able to scale your business with that, because I think that point is one of them. Before we go there, though, I want to touch on, because I love the analogy you had of the sort of volcano of work, the volcano of great people. And I, I'm trying to think what a retained volcano would be. And maybe we go one by one on those, because at a really simplistic level, that is a good people business, isn't it? If you bring enough clients in, you bring in great team members, and you keep enough of both, you will succeed. And Clearly, that's a model that's worked for you. But equally, selling any type of advisory work is hard. I'd be fascinated. Maybe we go one by one and, and open them up as we go. I'll let you decide which one goes first, but I'd love to know how you've approached all three. So maybe where do you think we start and then we can go through them? Well, there's no business without all of these things working. So I don't think any, any one is more important than the other. Fairly early on, or very early on, actually, Steve and I carved the business up between us. And I said I would look after sales and marketing. Effectively, I would look after the top line. And Steve would look after the engaging great team. But it is a network effect. I mean, it's important to understand that most of our clients now have heard of us multiple times over a period of years. I guess that's the key thing. In many cases, a client will come to us because they have received some marketing material or something like that. But they will remember that their accountant mentioned us to them when they were playing golf a year ago and they will remember that they got an invite to an event we were running two or three years ago and they will remember some connection that one of their non-execs had to us or whatever so there is a long period where we have built up the strength of the value of this network and similarly most people join us because someone they know has said to them this is a really great thing to do or because they go to an agency a recruiter and say i don't know what i want to do next because i'm a bit fed up and a bit bored and that person knows us and says let me put you in touch with freedom club that's where you should go so it is the combination of things that we have done over the years it's the accumulation of thousands and thousands of hours of work by us and the team around us that have created the conditions 
where leads flow and people join. That's the best way to understand it. And that perhaps is the difference between us and many consultancies, which are, you know, traditional people businesses where they are trying to win a knockout piece of business with a fantastic client or whatever. Our business isn't like that. Our business is the accumulation of, as I say, thousands of hours of work by many, many people over a period of years. And I love that phrase about creating the conditions. And maybe we hold on sales and marketing because to your point, Graham, it's your space and running a marketing agency. I have more to say on marketing than I do on recruitment. How have you created those conditions? Because, and forgive me if I'm grossly sort of generalizing about IT people, but IT is a world of measurable data, you know, metrics. It's quite ones and zeros. To your point, that Creating the conditions implies you know, there is a belief, to your point, of we're growing a big business. We know we're going to get there. We're going to do everything we can to achieve it. I guess there's a combination of a belief that's going to happen and an acceptance that certain things might not succeed. How have you fostered that culture to create the conditions? And what is that culture you fostered? Because in people businesses, typically, to your point, if you're trying to win a big, you know, a big elephant account or whatever you call it, like sales and marketing can get quite a bad rep because if it's not an immediate input equals output, people get dismissive of it. You clearly have taken a different view. I'd love to know how you've created those conditions across the team. Yes, good question. I'm not sure there's a simple answer to it, but again, our business is a bit different because of the market we play in, because of the services we provide and so on. So I was running sales and marketing for what, 12 years up until just a few months ago, we've we now got a chief commercial officer uh, who's now responsible in the UK for those things. I think there's, there's a number of components to this. The first one is that, as I said before, our principal sales channel is through our referral network, so to speak. And when I say referral network, there's no money changing hands. It's just people we know. So we've got a dozen people who are out and about every day of the week shaking hands with other people around the country, shaking hands, drinking coffee, and chatting. And our approach to this is that is absolutely core to growing our business. So being known by all of the regional accountants, wealth managers, CEO coaches, you know, non-exec chairs, high street law firms, high street banks, all of these people, because these are the people, you know, the insurance brokers, the real estate brokers, these are the people who know the chief execs and they need to know us. So that is a massive, massive effort that goes on all the time. And building up the team of people who want to do that is one of the things that has been foundational for us. So that group of people who are out there doing that every day of the week. And when you say group of people, these are Freeman Clark people or are these the advisors that you've networked with just to... Uh, no, so these are people on our team. I okay. mean, like all of our people, legally, they are subcontractors, they're suppliers, and, they, and that's a genuine thing. But what they do for us is that they are networking and building partnerships all day, every day. because that's the thing which ultimately leads to trickles of leads. And when you put all of those trickles of leads together, then that gives us our lead generation machine. Because most mid-market, if you're a mid-market chief exec, 
and you want to buy a service like ours, and you probably don't know exactly if you want to buy our service, but you want to buy some a service like ours, then you don't Google it, probably. You ask someone you know. So what we need to do is be known by the people that know the chief themselves. That's what we're all about, is about being part of those fabrics. So if I go to a networking dinner in you know around the country in mid-market and i do this not infrequently and what's astonishing is that i can sit down next to someone and they say oh i know you i know from of course i know from and i kind of think how on earth did that happen and the way it's happened is that we've got it, it you know we've got these people out and about every day day after day week after week month after month year after year for 12 years and it gets to a point where people know us so that's the most important so when you're talking about creating the conditions just by knowing lots and lots of people building a purposeful approach to that activity from a marketing standpoint we decided after a few years that the most important thing again because these same people are going to hear from us again and again and again was that we weren't annoying so our marketing position is to position ourselves as Thought leaders, yeah, but the voice of reason, a friendly voice of reason that you don't unsubscribe from and whose daily note and whose materials are good, credible, interesting, thought provoking. And many times people have said to us, you're a very professional outfit, aren't you? And you can't say, what do you mean by that? What they probably mean by that is that the look and feel of the kinds of materials that they get in their inbox. Or when they've searched for something and they've found us, that actually they've just generally been impressed by it. And that's unusual for an IT business because most IT businesses are selling pretty complex product. Whereas what we're selling, again, is our credibility and our likability. I, I find it fascinating, Graham. And, and that last point particularly, because it may not be the podcast for it, but I think at its core, any people business, that, that is what you're selling. You know, the, the complexities, yes, you need to be able to do complex IT transformation. But to your point, we work in a world where you can't Google this and you can't buy it on Amazon. And so, you know, they, that credibility, that likability, you know, if you're going to be on a program with someone till two in the morning for however many days or weeks it is, you know, we've all been there. That's a really big piece. And it's fascinating in hearing you explain that the, the conditions, it sounds they were very conscious and then the commitment to them, to your point of focus around what you do feels quite unwavering. It feels like you've been very clear on these are our routes to market. This is to your point that, you know, we need those advisors. We need to be known. And you've committed to that rather than the question I sometimes get, what's the latest marketing channel? What's the latest trick? You know, you've, you're clear on it. And for our listeners, you're smiling. So just, I'm interested in your thoughts, Graham. That's true, because I, I mean, you're right. We have been quite singular about this, and we do continue to be, I think. We battle away and battle away and battle away for this. I think there is a danger sometimes that with this kind of thing, you can be looking for a causal relationship. Maybe the point here comes back to that passage of time I was talking about before. Most people, as I said, are not out looking to buy what we sell, and we're unlikely to be able to convert them to buy it if the time's not right. So often what we're looking to do is just stay in their line of sight. Stay in their line of sight. So the day will come when they think, ah, I've had it with this, or I need to do something. What am I going to do? And at that point, 
if they can either find us or remember us or an email pops through or they're playing squash with their mate and their mate says, well, have you thought about freedom car? Then that's our game. And so it's a long business. And as I say, what the value that we built up is the fact that we have constructed that dense and wide network throughout a lot of the kind of mid-market fabric of the UK. And it, it's fascinating to your, you know, to your squash sort of example there. It, again, something that makes a lot of sense, but it's quite, I think, uncommon is you are not attempting to get to the CEO in kind of the first hit, if you like, or the first move. You know, I, you hear you hear a lot of people who, or who you work with, we work with CEOs, therefore we only talk to CEOs. And actually, I think what you've highlighted, and I don't know, I, you may have a view or not, but I don't know if it's exclusive to the mid-market, is actually by you have marketed to the people who will be the trusted advisor to the CEO, because actually you can't be the trusted advisor until they need you. So, no, no, no. So there are two levels to this. So 100% agree with you. There are two levels to it in terms of what we've done. There's a difference between who we market to and who we build relationships with. We market to the chief execs and building up that database and so on is something that we put enormous amounts of effort to. I mean, really enormous. Uh, And we have a high quality database that you can't buy because we've had to build it ourselves uh, and maintain ourselves. So to that extent, we are marketing to the chief execs. But our relationship building is with the trusted advisors or, you know, in some cases, they're not even advisors. They're just the people who know the people. They're just the people who are out and about who are likely to be known by them. So, yeah, so it works on two levels. But a lot of this you might not even call marketing. You know, a lot of it you would just, I mean, is it marketing if if you have a cup of coffee with someone? Well, I don't know. But it is part of our purposeful approach. It is what we do. It is what we do. And it's not an interruption to what we do. It is what we do, because ultimately, this is where a lot of our business comes from. I think, to your point, we maybe like the mid-market. We, we will avoid the definition of where marketing starts and relationship building stops. But your point, Graham, of purposeful, I think, is, is the really key one for anyone to take away. Because, you know, take your example of coffee. I have been in places and seen where where the metric is coffee, but without purpose. And so, you know, if I meet 10 friends for coffee, is that purposeful in the business context? Maybe not. Whereas I think what you've highlighted there is with clarity of purpose around that work volcano, for want of a better word, it means the actions support the goal, which I think is a really powerful piece to take away. I wonder if it's worth then turning, you touched on Steve does more of the recruitment side. So maybe I'll kind of jump that one unless you you have sort of anything more to add on that. But the retain piece would be fascinating because you know, this is on your website. You talk about you've got an MPS of 82, which for any most of our listeners will know MPS, but anyone who doesn't is huge. And you talk about having world-class client relationships. I'd love to know how you have built that. Because again, you know, just having that is beyond just the normal relationship level, if you like. That's you know an exceptionally high MPS score. How have you built that client relationship and client retention part of your business? Because to your sort of three-legged stool earlier, we've talked on sales, we've touched on recruitment, but all of that's for nothing if you're not retaining clients. How have you made that a core of what you've done? Yes. So just to close off the point about retention is that many of the things I was saying are again true. It's a community of people. We need to be known by the community of CIOs, CTOs, CISOs, and so on, so that at some point in their career, they think, what should I do next? I know, maybe I've got what it takes. Maybe I could get through the 
process. And it is an arduous process. It's a long and arduous process. Maybe I could do that. Maybe I could join Freeman Clark because that sounds great. That looks really good. People really enjoy it. So many of the things I was saying before about our kind of client community, same with uh, the principal community. But to the retention point, I think, again, from the outset, we recognize the importance of this. Many of the clients who launched our business at the start are still clients now. And the reason, I think, is to do with the fact that our principals approach their engagement with the clients on the basis that we really are trying to make a difference. And that is more than just delivering a report, more than just delivering a PowerPoint, for example. The kinds of things that consultants typically do are often the situations that our clients find themselves in that they then throw up their hands and say, can you get me out of this? You know, I I had KPMG and they wrote me a 3,000-page report. What am I going to do with that? Most mid-market clients don't have the resources or the time or the patience to deal with that. What they want is someone who will turn that into business outcomes for them. And that is a deeply complex challenge, obviously, and it's a combination of a technical challenge. But as with all these things, it's overwhelmingly a people challenge to turn those ideas into reality. And that is something that we engage people who we believe are able to take our clients on that journey and to deliver the outcome that the client's looking for rather than just a report about the report. So culturally, it's a difference. And we make it real in terms of the kind of people that we engage on the team. And then how does that build into that MPS? Because, and this is obviously very top level, Graham, you know, what you've described there makes a lot of sense. What is it about how you do that that gets you the level of MPS? Because especially in the mid-market where, to your point earlier, some of these CEOs, the IT is not their bag or it's not something they're that excited about. You must do something quite special to get them to give you a nine or 10 on an MPS for if it's not something that you find that exciting to start with, it's hard to get excited about it such that you'll give it a nine or a 10. So what is it about, and this might be your, you know, the the CTO working with them, or it might be the wrapper that you put around with Freeman Clark, you know, what is it that makes that a delighting experience, not just a good experience? I think I'll answer that at two levels. I mean, firstly, we internally, once we've engaged people onto the team, there are then a number of long processes that they go through where they are effectively introduced to our IP about how to retain clients. And it is a long, complex process. Again, it's Steve's part of the shop, but retaining clients is something that we have built up an enormous amount of IP on. But I guess if I was just trying to illustrate it from my own experience, perhaps because I'd had quite a long break in consultancy, perhaps because I hadn't been a consultant for a long time. I'd been a corporate CIO. And then when I picked up some clients of my own coming back into this, I think I went in with a different attitude. And I distinctly remember a long meeting with one of them, where at the end of which there was a very long pause. And he said, you're not like other consultants, are you? And the reason I think was because I'd taken them to heart. And 
I think that we encourage our people to do that. We encourage our people to see the success of their clients as genuinely being what we are trying to achieve. They are contractors to us. We're contracting with our clients, but those don't affect the fact that what we're all trying to do is genuinely help our clients achieve some upside. We're not trying to flog them a license to a product. We're not trying to upsell them or cross-sell them. What we're genuinely trying to do is to help them get to the other side. So I think that part of this is that we have a deep and genuine commitment to customer service and that we see it as a privilege to serve our clients and that we think highly of them and we speak highly of them and we try to help them be successful. And that's actually countercultural for a consultancy. Something we're actually going to come on to in a moment, Graham, and I, I'm, this podcast is like Switzerland, so I, I don't necessarily want to agree that every it is anti-countercultural uh, for all consultancies, but I think I understand where you're going with it, which we, we will explore. And just to that point of you know the, the effort to retain, I mean, it, it was interesting what you said, and I, I appreciate you, you may not want to share the IP, but actually that you have invested that time in how do we retain and training people on how to retain, because I think it's interesting, isn't it? Just like sales is a learned skill, actually how to be retained in the right way, which we'll, we'll come on to in a moment, sort of with the, the growth of the model is key as well. And actually, if you're not doing that in the right way, it's not going to land or you're going to you're going to come out of the client, you know, hearing you've put a lot of focus in there as well and, and sort of deliberate purpose, you know, back to our creating the conditions that like you've created the conditions for that to exist. It sounds like quite consciously. Yeah, completely. 100%. Because retention is what makes our business. If we slide back on retention, then we kind of turn into consultancy in a way, trying to turn into a, a traditional consultancy. What makes our business is the fact that we have ongoing relationships with our clients. And they, you know, they'll ebb and they'll flow. Sometimes we're doing more, sometimes we're doing less. Sometimes it'll be one person, other times it'll be another person, or maybe it's two or whatever. But those ongoing relationships over a period of years is what makes the business what it is. And we have been very purposeful about that. And as I said before, our business, um, the IP in our business, isn't really how to be a CIO or CTO or whatever. It is how to generate leads, how to close them, how to retain clients, how to build our networks. That's really where our intellectual property is. And it's fascinating because rarely do I hear people speak of those sides of the business that usually it's the IP is in the methodology or the approach, but actually those structures around it. And I've teased this segue a few times, so I'm, I'm going to make the jump and we can dive into it. Is Your business is fascinating to your point around what the typical consultancy does and whether you would even call yourselves a consultancy. Like You do some things very differently. And you know, there is a lot of common orthodoxy, if you like. You know, we've all read David Meister's Mastering the Professional, Managing the Professional Services Firm and sort of similar books, approaches like it. And, and, you know, you touched on, Graham, a lot of this comes out of big consulting, if you like, the kind of land and expand, the grow multiple service offerings, you know, diversify so you're not dependent on one, you know, service area or industry area. And I'd love to get your take on some of those because, you know, if I was to be overly simplistic, I'd say you touched on it. You focus purely on one service line and you haven't deviated in 12 years. We'll come on to actually how you're changing geographically, but you've stayed in the UK. And to that last point around land and expand, you know, you alluded to it. 
right or wrong, there is a growth model in consulting, which is scale teams on clients. So, you know, get one person in, that makes 10, that makes 100. Your model is pretty unashamedly teams of one, I believe, and you can tell me if that's wrong. And yet you have built a successful business around all of these things that many would say are the opposite to what will set a advisory firm up for success. So I'd love to get your, I'm sure you've got thoughts on all of those. I'd love to get your thoughts and how actually those have been strengths for you instead of weaknesses. So from a detailed point of view, we're normally teams of one or two, a few days a month, sometimes more, sometimes full-time, sometimes multiple people full-time, but normally one or two for a few days a month. Our business is highly diversified in that we have hundreds of clients in pretty much every sector around the UK and in the New York tri-state. So it's highly diversified in that standpoint. We've taken the view that the value we're looking for isn't measured by the monthly invoice. It's measured by the longevity of the client relationship. So because what that means is that each client is effectively recurring income. So it's a slightly different view. And, in, and there are aspects of how we measure ourselves that are a bit more like a SaaS business. You know, we will look at the number of clients. But our, our business plans will often say, how many clients do we want to be billing in June? How many clients do we want to be billing in December? You know, and the client lifetime is one of our main measures and total client value, these kinds of things. So it's whereas we would never talk about project value or something like that. We don't really even use the word project. Well, not we don't really even use it. We don't use the word project because it's not really meaningful in terms of our engagements. Many times we have thought about expanding our offer. And as I say, 12 years in, we are now starting to broaden what we are doing. But it has kept things very, very simple. And that has been at the root, I think, of our ability to scale is the simplicity. We don't have the layers of management. You know, we don't have the exec and the account manager and the account director and the partner and the managing partner and all that kind of stuff. And those people might put together very clever strategies. And also, to be honest, most of our clients aren't great opportunities to, to, to sell multiple members of the team into. But what they are is great introducers. So, you know, if you think of the mid-market, I mean, most of the UK economy is not big companies. There are a relatively small number of rarefied big companies. And so you can spend a lot of time thinking about how to expand your presence in BT or, or BA or whoever your enterprise client is. Or else you can just say, well, actually, the person who owns this business in Sheffield knows the person who owns that business in Sheffield who knows the person who owns that business in Sheffield and so you can expand that way and that has been where we've ended up I don't think we could necessarily have given that explanation when we started but it's not the case that our cross-sell is geographic rather than within an enterprise does that make sense so I suppose I'm saying just looking at it wrong Nick you're just looking at it wrong. That's not <laughs> when you're in the mid-market with tens of thousands of, of clients, and we've got a pretty clear idea actually how many mid-market businesses there are. That actually the most important thing is that you can network your way in through and across and between them, rather than the opportunity within any one of them. 
Well, and I think even for those listening who who do work with larger clients, Graham, I, th- I think that point is still very powerful because to what you touch on around where you put your focus, you, you could spend all your focus on mapping a specific client, you know, in marketing right now, account-based marketing is very sexy. You know, how do I find out who in BT is my person and, and you know, how do I get to them? And I think your point isn't, it's not lost on me around actually you can't decide when they buy. You know, the intersection has to be they need your services and you are available at the right time. And that's where, to your point, being known by 10 people is better than being known by one. Or what, sorry, 10 organizations is better than being known by one organization. And I love the metrics piece as well around that customer lifetime value. I mean, I'm intrigued just as it applies in our world. Do you have a kind of, I guess, an an opposite or a kind of antagonist metric for customer lifetime value to make sure that you aren't short-term losing lots of projects. And I, I don't think you are, but you know there is a world where, because you've been going for 12 years, customer lifetime value could remain steady, but suddenly you could be dropping clients every month because of something going on. So because of the scale of the business, you know, I've worked in consultancies before and you've got a relatively small number of clients and you've got a strong 80-20, so you know who are the ones that matter or the rest of it. Our business isn't like that. We've got hundreds and hundreds of them. So it's all about the numbers. It's all about the numbers. And it's all about, as you say, what percentage of the clients that we lost this month, they'll be dividing into cohorts. How many of those did we work with for less than two years? How many did we work with for more than two years? What proportion of the lost clients were we billing this much to or that much to? You know, what proportion of the lost clients did we acquire through this channel or that channel? Ours is quite a data-rich business because the volumes are quite high. So I got this morning our monthly KPI reports and all the numbers are in there. So in some ways, it's easier with our business because I don't know and nor does Steve. We don't know these clients. We don't know the stories. And it is much more about the numbers. So yes, there's a lot of numbers being monitored. And you know, what's the size of the pipeline today versus what was it a week ago? All of this kind of stuff is is all carefully measured and, and, and monitored. And to your point of hundreds of, of customers, and, and this again is more, I'm thinking for anyone who, who likes the sound of this model and, and wants to do them in, in their own space, Graham, is to your point of the typical consulting model, you know, that there is a partner who has those small number of relationships. They do a lot of whining and dining with, you know, four key buyers, let's say. In your model, that just becomes unworkable or you eat a lot of dinners. I, I'll let you tell me which. To our earlier conversation around inflection points and, seg- and sort of evolution, was that ever a challenge where, you know, let's say you had 10 clients, you or Steve could visit them all and make sure that, you know, everything was going well. When you've got a hundred, and obviously the scale of business, you you physically can't. Is that just something? Is that expectation managing up front? You know, clients don't expect to to meet you. Is that to your point of SaaS making it more productized? I guess how have you squared that side to yes manage expectations? Have you grown? Yeah, so we have regional directors around the country. Okay, uh, and it is their job to be out and about to both know the clients well and to know all of their key partners well. So that's what they do. Uh, so you have that layer underneath who... Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's what they do all day, every day. And they will involve many of the principals in some of that as well. But fundamentally, they do that. Because it's just, it's totally impressive for Steve and I to do it. I mean, it's wild. It's so impressive. It's not even worth talking about. So it's out of the question. Makes it an easy conversation, Graham. Makes it, so, but what Steve and I do is that we know our best partners well. 
And so back to your previous point about the providers of part-time marketing directors, part-time CFOs, part-time HR directors, the people who provide these who are our best partners. Stephen, I know them very well. So you, you mentioned it, and I, I did want to turn to it, and this might be where, to your point, after 12 years you have branched out, is, is that venture into the US? Because expanding overseas is a huge step for any organization. And it's one that I see many organizations struggle with going UK to US. Like, on paper, a lot looks the same, but actually when you break it down, there's a lot of differences. Maybe we start with why did you decide the US? And then a bit like when you planned the UK business, what, what was the launch approach to make that a success? We went through a, a bit of a planning exercise, a bit of an analysis, where we kind of wrote down the factors that were likely to be relevant, you know, just did the obvious stuff really. And there were many options, but if you take the sort of convergence of language, culture, Size of mid-market, that's really important. You know, you've got to have a really dense mid-market to make our lives easy. Um, geographically dense mid-market, I mean, ease of travel, law, blah, 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 you know. Then we ended up with about three target areas in the States. So South Africa, for example, great, good time zone, similar, <laughs> similar language, but it just doesn't have the density of mid-market. Australia might do, but it's a very long way away. Northern Germany, lots of uh, mid-market businesses, but they speak a different language. Uh, so on and so on. So, you know, you kind of, we ended up saying, well, actually, when you take all of these things, there were three areas in the US that I said, well, I'm going to go and visit them. And I flew to New York and I came back and said, Steve, America's quite like us. New York is a good place to go. Uh, I felt that I had, I mean, I, I remember going there for about four days and I had about 15, 20 meetings, just, you know, coffee after coffee after coffee. And I just felt that I was having exactly the same conversations in New York that I would have in London. And so it just seemed like a, a relatively simple next step. So I didn't even bother going to the other destinations because, you know, why would... And on that basis, we decided to launch there. As you say, there are endless differences. I could talk all day about this. You know, it's been an amazing, amazing education. There are many things which are subtly different about the States than the UK, but also there are many, many things which are very similar. So, yeah, uh, and their mid-market, which is a slightly different size and shape to ours, has basically all the same needs that ours does. Why wouldn't it? And in launching over there, is has that been the launch strategy to our conversation earlier? Has it been applied that similar networking model that you know get known by the people who know the people approach and have you mentioned around them being similar in that way have you found the us is similar to the uk it's it's knowing the people i think the nature of networking in the states is different um in a in a way that's difficult to describe and in a way i still don't fully understand i don't fully understand them i don't think they fully understand me to be honest i think there are just differences in how we network but fundamentally the answer is yes You've teased me, Graham. I've got to ask, what are the big differences you've noticed? What is it they don't get about you? What don't you get about them? Have you spent much time in the States? I, I actually have never been. It's on my list. So, no. So, the first thing to appreciate is that America is many, many different places. And if you talk to an American business, then they will say, oh, we'll send a different person for a sales meeting in Connecticut as to Long Island, as to Philadelphia, as to whatever. You know, they are culturally different places. But I think that in the UK, 
we spend a considerable amount of time getting to know people and building up trust, which some people do in America, but many people don't. And particularly in the New York tri-state and the metro area, there is, I think, a lot less time given to networking. There's a lot less people feel, I think, that they don't need to spend much time to establish a network, a networking connection with someone, because I don't think that they feel that the trust aspect, I think they feel that so keenly. So it can seem to us to be, I wouldn't say superficial, but it can seem to us to lack the depth of knowledge of someone else that you would expect to build up in the UK. I'm, I'm asking you a big question of UK-US relations here, but in your experience, what causes that? Is it actually they judge they're quicker, the clients you've worked with are quicker to give you a go, but you know, it's if it doesn't work, it's known that's the end of that relationship? Is it less around building trust before you start and is it more start and then we'll build trust? I, I'm clutching, so that might not be the right one, but I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, what have you found in that respect? Yeah, I mean, I've found so many different things. I think trust features less. I think trust features less in American business. And I think the best demonstration of that is how litigious they are, because they don't, because they're much more willing to litigate, whereas we would consider that to be a really a last resort. And so it goes without saying that we quite like working with people we trust, because we wouldn't expect to be litigating. Whereas I just think that they the trust thing doesn't feature as much because there's a contract. So I think it's much more emphasis on contracts than there is over here. Perhaps that's the flip side. I think a lot of their networks come from things which are a little bit alien to us. A lot of college networks, a lot of religious networks, a lot of kind of affiliations like that that we don't really see. A lot of Americans are involved with philanthropy in a way that's a little bit less usual over here. And so they will build up connections with people through those kinds of routes. And they would say that they get a lot of their business through networks, but it's just got a slightly different flavor, got a slightly different flavor to what we're used to over here. And, you, you know, if, you get, if you're getting to know people in the UK because you think your business and their business can work together quite well, then it's not unusual to have an hour or an hour and a half meeting and then say, let's just go and grab a sandwich for lunch. Whereas that is much less usual. In the States, much less usual. Uh, and it's considered a bit strange, I think. Or if you say, let's go and get a drink, then that's considered a little bit unusual. I think there are many things like this where the way they do stuff is quite different. And also, when we talk about mid market over there, we're often talking about more substantial businesses that it's, there's more oxygen in the States. So you can get your business to a really, what we would consider to be really quite good size. If you've got a good business and a good idea and you're effective, you can build up what we would consider to be a really substantial business. And conversely, if you build up a five or 10 million pound business in the States, then the question is, why is your business so small? Because why would it be so small? What's wrong with you? I love that, Graham. And, and there's something in, in what you say, though, and, and it sounds like this is how you've applied you know, your launching in the US, is... is gaining that deep understanding of the market or the people in the market, back to what we talked about earlier with how you've grown your business in the UK. All of the nuances you've just described, I suspect mean that you and your team are, are able to have conversations you know, with Americans like Americans. And I do sometimes wonder if that's what UK firms get wrong, is they try and apply Britishness to the US, which 
doesn't always seem to be the most effective route. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had an answer to that, but I think you're right that I think there's a very complex balance to be struck. I don't want our business to be perceived as a Brit business in the States, but I think there's a little bit of the Union Jack which does you good over there as well because you are benefiting from, you know, a thousand years of the royal family and Downton Abbey and all of these things are counting in our favour as well. So it's a difficult balance, but I think you're right. I don't think we could, uh, we definitely are not a British business trying to operate in the States. We're definitely trying to operate like an American business. And I think we've covered it in these, Graham, but a, a last one, just in case there's anything we have missed. You know, for our listeners, if anyone is thinking of going out to the US, is there anything else that you would advise them? We've touched on quite a bit in terms of that, you know, actually how to be more an American business in your networking and your approach. But is there anything from what you've done that's either succeeded or, or less so or that you wish you'd done differently? You know, you would advise others if, if they were thinking 2024 is the year to go out to the US. Well, I mean, as I said before, we've done everything wrong. So we kind of have learned through a process of elimination. Again, the easiest way to, to, to start when you're over there is to start with Brits. But of course, that's not a great way to do it. Of course, you're, you're talking to the wrong people. So it's very easy. And, and when I'm over there, I'll often, you know, if I want an evening off, I'll go to kind of British networking. And then all of a sudden, I'm around people I understand. All of a sudden, you're propping up the bar, talking to people you understand, who are like you. But that's not how you're going to win. That's not how you're going to win in America. So it's a, it's a difficult balance. I wish I could say, this is my advice. Do this. Job done. Tick this box and it'll be fine. But, n- but nothing in business is like that. So that's my advice. It sounds like the advice is stay away from British networking and then try try as much as you can, Graham. Try as much as you can. I not not putting I definitely <laughs> I definitely am not saying stay away from British networking because <laughs> it's been a really, really great way in for us. But ultimately, if you're trying to get in amongst America, you've got to get in amongst America. Yeah. Makes sense. And yes, no slice on the British networking groups out there. Graham, one area that and it, it hasn't come up naturally, but it was it was on my list to talk about. So I'm gonna sort of bring it in here at the end before we come to the questions that many of my listeners will know, is is actually about the person I mentioned at the start, which is Simon Clark, who, as I understand it, has has been sort of a, a friend of yours, an advisor to the business, non-executive chairman for and fact check me on this, but I think about half a decade, or was until he stood down last year. And we talked a bit about that growth journey and that you and Steve, you know, you wanted just to grow, 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 and, and that's what you're still doing. But to some of these lessons that might help other people, why did you decide to, the time was right to bring on an advisor? And I'm sure he won't mind us talking about it. How did you select Simon as the right person? Because those two questions, I think, will be big for anyone building an advisory business. You know, should we have this expensive, if you like, non-fee-earning cost? And how do we pick the right person? Because there's lots of people who say they'll be advisors to my business, but how do I know they're going to be the right one? I think, yeah, we'd love to hear the story about that. I've known Simon since about maybe 2005 or something like that, so a long time. And when we were starting the business, when we were getting kind of rock and rolling, there were occasions, once in a blue moon, two or three times a year, where we would have strategy sessions and we wanted someone to facilitate, so I suggested Simon. And so he kind of knew the business vaguely. And then actually, 
to one of your earlier points about points of inflection, there came a point after maybe five years when uh, up until that point, in a way, Steve and I could just run the business ourselves. But we wanted to bring about a change. We needed to put in place a senior management team. We needed to put in place some additional foundations to allow us to scale further. And I don't think we could have done that. There is something about two founders and who chairs the management team. And there's also something about when the business gets to a certain size that you've got the amount of just the the weight of admin and incoming and so on, that your inbox is completely overflowing. You've got far too many things to do. You just stop getting around to strategy. You stop finding time for it. You stop getting, you become so immersed in the operational. So it felt like a really natural time for us to bring in a third person. And Simon was the most obvious person for it. Partly, I would say, because he is, in my opinion, a genuinely outstanding individual. I think, secondly, because we already knew him and he knew the business, and we were both very concerned about someone who would arrive and say, oh, you don't do it that way. Do the, you know, someone who would arrive with their own different vision for it. But he knew us and he knew what we were trying to do and we knew him, we could work with him. And then in terms of your point about advice, I think there's a lot of people who would position themselves as who position themselves as potentially able to do this role because they think that they have got a lot of answers. They've seen it, done it, they know the answer. And, you know, it's a bit like I sometimes think, oh, one day maybe I'll just become a kind of chair for other people's businesses. Now, my vision for that is leaning back, you know, with a cigar and telling other people what to do. And it, but it's not, you, that's not what you want. You don't want a chairman who behaves like that. What you want is a chair to actually create space for you to solve problems and occasionally nudges you and occasionally holds you to account. But it's not all about them. And, and I think and Simon Park has that in spades. And the other thing, I know it may not be a small thing, but if you've got someone who is moving between businesses, they've got to have the discipline and focus and capacity that they can actually walk into into one of our meetings and they know what's going on, that they know their stuff. And when we're talking about Andy, they know what we're talking about. When we're talking about Sally, when we're talking about this client, when we're talking about that situation, that they're not just in the business of nodding and pretending they know that they do actually remember the details and that they're all over it so you need someone who is actually who has the as i say the the capacity to do that and that's quite rare there are a lot of people who can sort of saunter in and they kind of got the grandeur the gravitas all that kind of stuff but we don't really need grandeur and gravitas what we need is genuine talent and so that's what i think simon gave us and it definitely allowed us to get past the point where it was me and Steve to create a senior management team and to move us up the next run. I think a fantastic overview, Graham, of, of what you look for and what others can look for. Feels like an obvious question. Did you look at alternatives to Simon at the same time? You know, all of the things you've highlighted Simon has, but did you and or Steve, was there a bit of a search to compare to make sure Simon had it or... Obviously not, no. <laughs> I'd love to say it was all carefully thought through, but of course it wasn't. And But again, we lowered ourselves into it. So initially, 
we just ask the silent chair of the senior management team. It's a bit like your previous question of me and Steve getting to know each other. It, we found a way of giving Simon increasingly greater scope for him to do more and then eventually appointed him as conference house chair. When he retired, we then did go through a search because by then we knew more clearly what we needed and to, to appoint the, the, the chair, which we then did and, and so on and so on. That's a whole other story. But at that stage, we were fortunate to have, to have someone on board, so to speak, who we already knew. So maybe to your point, about what should people be thinking about or looking for. I would say fairly early to be cultivating relationships with people who might be able to be the chair. Because if your business successfully grows to a certain point, you are going to need that. Back to your point of you know, that cultivating those relationships will prove useful at the right points. And it sounds like just like with your your client and your client relationships, it's the same here as you you got to know Simon and that opportunity came, Graham. And, and I like what you said there around that. You didn't jump straight in. You know, he chaired one monthly meeting that became two, that became three. And and again, that seems like quite a theme across how you've built the business is intentional but gradual, is you you know the direction, but then you test is probably the wrong word, but you do it in stages. So it's not jumping in with two feet. That's very hard to then get out of the swimming pool if it's not the right place for you. And I think your advice at the, yeah, that advice around cultivating gives people what they need. I guess this might be a huge question that we don't have time for. You mentioned, obviously, when you did replace some, I mean, you, you went to market. Yeah, if, if you were paraphrasing that job description, you know, if someone's got a pen and paper right now, what were those top five things on that list that, you know, when you went out to the exec search firm, you you needed them to find just in case that's useful for anyone doing the same? Yeah, I, I'm not sure I've got a simple answer to that. But I think for us, it's a very difficult balance, particularly as we've got bigger, between finding someone who can bring us value, but without telling us all right, boys, settle down, I've arrived now, you know, patting us on the heads and telling us this is how you should be running a business because we know how to run our business. So what we're looking for is it, it's, it's a very difficult balance there, which is someone who can come in, open up ideas we hadn't thought about before, someone who's got connections and who's got a network that we don't have, but that wants to take part in the existing direction of travel and help us steer it from then on, but who will immerse themselves in the vision before they start having new ideas. I think that was very succinct, Graham. So thank you for that. And I think a great overview for anyone who's thinking of hiring a similar role. And I am glad we went back to talk about Simon. And um, he told me prior to this, he won't mind what we say about him. So I'm sure he'll be very happy with your your review there. So the the final part of today, and these are questions I ask everyone, and and again, these are ones that Simon himself has answered. So you can you can compare notes after this. Um, two questions. The first is around books, and it's quite simply, what is the book or books that you've either gifted the most or have, have had the biggest impact on you, and and why is that? Do you mean business books? Just books. And I actually, I should say, Graham, I've got an increasing number of guests who tell me they don't read and I've had everything from YouTubes to magazines to podcasts. So oh, no, we all pretend that we will read. <laughs> <laughs> so the book that I have given to people on rare occasions, non-business books, that I think is a great book is The Remains of the Day. Have you read that? I have not. That is a great book. 
So I've given that to people when they've been ill and that kind of thing. It remains the day. So, but in, from a business book point of view, I was, I mean, I, you know, I've read my fair share. I think no books have affected me as much as De Bono's. And I read my first ever De Bono book when I was about 13 or 14. And I think they are and I've great books. And I have given those. In fact, I gave one to a youngster recently. I have given those books to young people and said, read this, um, because I think that those are transformational books. Amazing. And Edward De Bono was The Thinking Hats, if I remember. Yes, my memory The serves. Thinking Hats. Yeah. His first book, which is quite dated now, probably, Edward De Bono's Thinking Course, Goodness knows when he wrote it. I don't know. As I said, I read him when I was 13, 14, 15, maybe. And that is that to me was an enormous eye opener. Amazing, Graham. Well, and it's funny to your point around we all like to pretend we're we're better read than we are, right? I also find there are books and thinkers that stand the test of time. And, you know, in a world where I, I saw a stat, I think the other day that said there was something like a thousand leadership books already published this year, or things like, you know, Edward de Bono. I mean, you know, mine's always Dale Carnegie and How to Win Friends yeah, and Influence yeah, yeah, People. Yes. You know, yes, they, actually, that's a really great book. And, you know, that that is over 100 years old. And, you know, while the examples are obviously quite quaint now, the content and the meaning behind them holds true. And, you know, it sounds like with De Bono's work, it's the same for yourself. Like, actually, don't go and read 200 new business books. Go back to the two or three that have stood the test of time, I think, is is a kind of key message from what I'm hearing there. I think that's right. And I think Dale Carnegie's book, uh, I mean, I, I read it when I was maybe 18 or 19. And it's probably, as you say, very quaint. But I remember distinctly, you know, ask people to talk about themselves, never accuse anyone of anything. Things like that's absolutely right. It's as true today as it was when you wrote it. It is. And Graham, there's a whole separate podcast around this. I, I think I read it at 20, 21. I just started work. And yeah, exactly like you still, still remember the example of, you know, give people what they want if you want them to do what you want or something. There's, you know, there's the example with the cow and the, the milkmaid and how she moved it and others couldn't. There's so much in there. But Graham, that's, I think, some great recommendations. And I do like the fiction one as well. It's not all about business. And then the last question, and this, I ask it in kind of broad consulting parlance. So the grades may not mean so much to you. I'll let you take it how you see fit. It might be to give advice to listeners. It might be turning this on its head for the Freeman Clark world. So I'll let you take that. But the questions I ask it is, you've got three people in front of you. One is just starting their consulting career. So they're a graduate. One is a what I'd know as a manager in kind of a, a Accenture or PwC, and one is someone just approaching partner or, you know, as you did, maybe stepping out on their own. And the question is for each person, what's the one piece of advice you'd give them? Yeah, I, I can't possibly begin to answer. I think when you're starting out, my advice would be that you need to learn how to work. I don't think they teach you that at school. I think the assumption is that you'll pick that up. That if they teach you enough kind of French and biology, that you'll pick up how to work. But no one teaches you that. And you need to learn how to do it. I think more broadly, in terms of as you progress, I would say learning to value customers. In our game, it's all about customers, isn't it? It's all about customers and service, which again is a bit of a quaint word. But I think you need to genuinely be committed to the service of your clients. And I think the other thing I would say in terms of progressing a successful 
professional services businesses, you have to yourself personally, and you have to create an environment where there is the will to win. That, whereas in normal, you know, in, in kind of management, you can be a great manager, you can be a good manager, you can be a mediocre manager, but if you are trying to win business and come second three times on the trot, go and do something else. You know, there is winning clients and there is not winning clients. And in our business, you have to be prepared to do what it takes to work as hard as you need to work and to create a team and an environment where people understand the critical importance of that. Otherwise, you win no clients and then you don't have a business. I think fantastic advice, Graham. I was just pausing on your point and I love I love the directness of it and I think it's helpful for anyone if, if you come second three times this might not be for you and I think there's yeah there is a purgatory in in the consulting industry of people just about to make partner who never quite do because whether it's been promised to them or they haven't seen that they are still thinking they might win the fourth and I love your directness there in in that piece and just the advice in general Graham so thank you that brings us to the end of today this has been fascinating Simon was right it was he said it would be you know, a hugely interesting conversation it has been so thank you for making the time Graham the last piece and you touched on wanting to build your network if anyone listening to this might be a potential client or they might want to find out about how to join you where would you point them to where can they get in touch on LinkedIn Find me on LinkedIn and I'm always happy to get messages and, and notes from people. So yeah, very welcome to contact me through LinkedIn. Amazing, Graham. We'll put your LinkedIn profile and we'll put the website as well in the show notes. So anyone who's listening can just go straight there, connect with you. Otherwise, Graham, thank you for your time. All that's left to say is all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure, Nick. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Thanks, Graham. Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. 
we've had an immediate expansion of our network and, and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in, in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing and they wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's Nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.